Hello, this is UCL Uncovering Politics, and today we're looking at the politics of asylum. What explains variation in policies towards asylum seekers, both within states and between them? Hello, my name is Jennifer Hudson, and welcome to UCL Uncovering Politics, the podcast of the School of Public Policy and Department of Political Science at University College London. The politics of asylum is more important than ever. At the end of 2019, according to data from the UNHCR, there were 80 million displaced persons around the world. More than half of those were displaced within their own countries. But 25 million were refugees, and a further 4.2 million were seeking asylum in another country. So how do the countries that refugees and asylum seekers flee to respond? And what determines the degree to which these countries adopt an open or closed approach? Well, two of our colleagues here in the Department of Political Science are seeking answers to these questions in their research. Dr. Anna Oltman is lecturer in human rights, and Dr. Judith Spirig is lecturer in political science. And I'm delighted to say that both of them join me here today. Anna and Judith, welcome to UCL Uncovering Politics. Could we maybe start with some basic definitions around your research? When we talk about refugees and asylum seekers, who are we referring to, Judith? Hey, Jennifer. Thanks so much for uh, having me on the podcast. So to answer your question, I think generally among researchers of issues related to asylum and refugee policies, this is actually a really important question. We try and be relatively precise in the terms that we use. Um, Also, just because there are so many different terms and in the media, for instance, we often see that several terms are used to refer to to the same people. And so I think the first distinction and maybe, Anna, if you know you would like to add to this, please uh, jump in at any point. Often because it's it's not as clear cut um, as as I make it seem now. So the first sort of differentiation we often make is between voluntary and involuntary or forced migrants. Um, and generally, I think we, we speak about asylum seekers and refugees. Uh, we tend to mean people who have migrated or are migrating involuntarily, and so are affected by some form of forced displacement. And so among these people who are affected by forced displacement, we think of on the one hand people who are in internally displaced, uh, who have not crossed any borders to find safety, um, and those who have or who will cross borders. And, and asylum seekers and refugees are both, both people um, who are among those affected by forced displacement and who have or will cross um, international borders. And there, um, you were saying asylum seekers, so an asylum seeker is someone whose asylum claim, so whose request for sanctity has yet to be processed or is in the process of being processed, um, but no decision has been reached yet. And refugees are people generally who are unable or unwilling to return to their country of origin, owing to a well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, uh, membership of a particular social group or political opinion. And that's sort of the UNHCR, uh, the UN's refugee agency's um, definition that I've now given you. And most or about 150 countries around the globe have sort of adopted that definition. Then there is another form of protection for people that do not fulfill this definition or people that states say don't fulfill this definition, some form of uh, subsidiary protection. But, but let's maybe not get into this at the moment. 
We'll maybe pick that up in uh, in a few minutes. Um, Anna, Judith laid out this notion of forced migrants, and there are migrants who might be displaced within country, and those who who seek to cross borders and who are displaced into into other countries. Maybe thinking about those kind of differentiations, how do you describe patterns of uh, asylum seeking going on around the world today? Where are people generally coming from, and where are they generally going to? Great, thanks, Jennifer. You know, I think there is a mismatch between the perceptions of where asylum seekers are going and the actual reality, because the truth is that most displaced people in the world, internationally displaced, so people who have left their country of origin, are actually in a neighboring country or somewhere close by. Eventually, some folks will try to seek asylum past their initial country of first refuge, often because they they don't find meaningful safety in those countries. And that's why we do see flows of asylum seekers trying to make it to Australia, to Europe, to the United States. But most people, um, around 73%, according to the UN, are in an immediate neighboring country. 85% of displaced people are in the developing world. So our perceptions here in the global north tend to be that there is an influx of asylum seekers coming to our countries when the reality is that most displaced people are close to the country that they left in the first place. There's a huge gap sitting where we sit in the UK and thinking about the kind of great, you know, migration flux in in 2015. And if we think about rhetoric in the US in recent years under the Trump administration around caravans kind of coming to US borders. So, you know, what you're saying is the the discourse that dominates uh, the kind of public information and debate in, in lots of Western advanced industrialized democracies isn't where refugees and, and asylum seekers are flowing. It's really the adjacent countries that are, that are most proximate to their country of origin. Yeah, in a global sense, that's exactly what the patterns look like. You might also ask, okay, well, even so, how many people are coming to a given country by its population? Because maybe that is what leads to these perceptions of an influx. But even there, those neighboring countries tend to be the countries that have the highest proportion of refugees per population, right? Lebanon is a country that has something like 25% of the people living there right now are actually refugees or displaced people, which is nowhere even close to the proportion in countries like the US or the UK. And Anna, what, what responsibilities do states have towards asylum seekers. So when we think about people who are, are forcibly displaced and they're seeking refuge in another country, what, what is that country's responsibility? So according to international law, the main responsibility of states is to not return somebody who has a valid claim to, to protection along the definitions that Judith outlined. So somebody who fears persecution in the country that they come from states are responsible for not returning them until they have adjudicated that claim. So try to figure out whether they do have a valid case for asylum. That is pretty much the main criteria that states seem to focus on, although international refugee law also highlights things like protecting and ensuring the dignity of displaced people, you know, providing them with basic services in the country where they're seeking refuge, um, trying to keep families together. These principles do exist, but the main criteria of responsibility tends to be just not returning people to a place where they're going to face persecution. I know that's going to dominate much of our discussion that's going to come here in a few minutes. So before we get into those particular research projects, maybe let's just explore a little bit about what led you to this research. Um, I think it's always interesting to, to understand how we come to the questions that we investigate. So Judith, what, what inspires you? What motivates you? 
It's not even that easy to answer that question. You'd think it would be the easiest question. So I, I think one thing that sort of motivated me to pursue this research agenda more broadly, sort of question, um, answer, or trying to answer questions related to asylum and refugee issues, is that when I was growing up, in sort of in the 90s, the, the war in the Balkans happened and people from there started searching for asylum in Europe. And, and I went to school with some kids originating in the, in the Balkans. And that really sort of had me starting to think about these kinds of questions. So on the one hand, that had to do with, you know, the, the asylum process sort of what happened there and what is going on um, in their policies and how likely are they um, to get asylum and refugee status. But on the other hand, also um, with regard to the hostility that these people are facing in, in many European countries, sort of and this question about, you know, why is it that there's some people at you know, sometimes at the margins of society who are facing this sort of backlash and hostility. Why is that? That is something that, that has always motivated me. That's sort of the long-term answer and then have a more sort of, I don't know, po political science um, answer to your question that has to do with evidence-based research and sort of policy experimentation. But um, well, I don't know if you, that's of interest here. You approach it very from a, from a very kind of uh, rigorous theoretical and empirical base. So we'll get to that in a minute. But I think it's it's really nice to know. I mean, a lot of this is personal. Um, a lot of the research that we do is, is is drawing on personal experience. Anna, what about you? What motivated your research agenda? Well, I worked with uh, resettled refugees when I was an undergraduate student in Pennsylvania in the U.S. And I guess one thing that was always really striking to me was the difference in treatment and assumptions between people who had received refugee status and other displaced people. And we see this today in the language around like economic migrants versus refugees. And this idea that there is some criterion that if you fulfill it, you are worthy of protection and your human rights are valid in this country um, of refuge and that other folks will continue to be kind of erased from that discussion. I find it really interesting to think about the difference in treatment between different kinds of migrants and what that says really about the kind of protection that we're providing to people. And you've alluded to this this idea of, of the protection, um, which is embedded in, in, in countries' policy responses. Is it, is it wrong? Is it unfair? Is it fair to say that policymaking related to asylum um, is dysfunctional or damaging? I personally would say that it is absolutely dysfunctional in a couple of ways. I mean, I think that part of this is just a legacy of how international law has developed the concept of who a refugee is, which is very specific and kind of legalistic and individualized. And that, to me, has a big mismatch between the actual global refugee issues that we're interested in, which is large-scale displacement, people who are victims of violence, who are looking for safety and many of whom don't necessarily fit those very specific refugee criteria, but nonetheless are in need of some kind of protection. And I think that mismatch uh, is a huge problem when it comes to protecting people's rights. And Judith, you know, we, we've used these words dysfunctional and damaging. In your view, how is policymaking? Um, is, there, is there any kind of innovation or experimentation that we can learn from? 
Yeah, I mean, um, we were already talking a bit about the 2015 sort of European refugee protection crisis. And I think in this context, um, we have seen a lot of policy um, experimentation. So many countries in Europe have introduced new policies aimed at the asylum procedure, also the integration process and so on to try and sort of deal with the sudden increase in um, asylum claims that they faced. And so I guess from the perspective of asylum seekers and refugees, as Anna was saying, who are you know, mainly interested in protection, um, many of these policies or some of these were maybe damaging and dysfunctional, but we often as political scientists also have to ask you know, why they came into place and what are the purposes that the government um, or you know, whoever introduces them um, sort of sees in them. And so that is sort of related to your previous question about why I'm interested in this. I think it's very important and interesting to ask sort of how come certain policies come into place and what are the consequences of these policies for for asylum seekers um, and refugees. And that's something that I look into in my research and, and I know that Anna does as well. Well, let's move on to your particular projects. And, and Judith, you, you focus on variation over time and how policy towards asylum seekers actually gets implemented in a country. Can you draw out for our audience, what's the question you ask and what conclusions do you draw? Yes, thank you. Very happy to uh, talk about that a bit. So I think to, to just open it up a bit at the beginning, more broadly, one question that I do study in my research is how factors that do not have to do with how well-founded an asylum seeker's appeal or a claim is. Um, so things that we usually tend to think should not matter um, influence how an asylum uh, seekers' appeal is being decided nevertheless. So that includes um, who the decision makers are. So in my case, that's the judges that decide an asylum appeal or some features of the decision-making process or also, and that's what you are um, alluding to now, how salient asylum and refugees issues are among the public or in the media when an asylum appeal is being decided. So what do you find? Tell us the tell us the conclusions that you get to. So in the, in in case of the last question, it, it's really about whether um, something that we call issue salient, so, so how salient asylum refugees are among the public, to which, which extent the media reports on it, how the extent to which politicians talk about it, um, whether that influences um, how likely an asylum appeal is to be granted, and I find that that it matters. So. Asylum appeals who, that are decided in times of low asylum salience are more likely to be granted than similar asylum appeals that are decided in times of high asylum salience. Can you take us through the, the evidence that you kind of used to get to, to your conclusion? So, I mean, measuring how, I mean, one question is, how did you measure this notion of, of issue salience? Because that, that's the important kind of variable or factor that you're looking here to see if that moves and then, and then judges' decisions change as a result. But can you give us a little sense of, of your evidence and how you went about testing this question? Yes, sure. So, in, in that study, I analyze asylum appeal decisions in Switzerland, so one particular country, as you were saying before, and I analyze about 40,000 asylum appeals that were handled between 2007 and 2015. So these are the cases, and I look at 
you know, the decisions of these cases and, and uh, whether they were granted or rejected. And on the other hand, I look at, um, as I was saying, the salience of asylum issues and to kind of measure that, sort of how that tracks over time. Um, in Switzerland, I use uh, media reporting. So I take, I think, 18 or 19 different newspapers in Switzerland. And on each day, I count the number of articles um, about asylum and refugee issues to sort of create the measure as to the extent to which asylum and refugee issues are are like are being talked about um, in Switzerland. And do you look at the the kind of sentiment of those? I mean, do you do you code that for kind of either positive or neutral or negative, um, or do you just kind of look at the volume, the sheer quantity of of coverage? Yeah, so I mainly look at the volume. Um, it's kind of difficult to look at the sentiment as such because it's not always clear what is a negative um, as. A, article on asylum issues or a positive one. Um, lots of the coverage is about, sort of has this notion of it being a problem that needs solving. And some of the positive articles would sort of be anti-anti-immigrant positions. And so that's something that is quite difficult to measure uh, quantitatively without reading through every single article. But one thing I do to sort of try and figure out in more detail which are the kinds of topics or the kinds of issues within asylum and refugee issues that that are the most relevant maybe when it comes to um, an effect on uh, how asylum appeals are being decided. I look at the different topics and, and there, so one topic for instance is how and where asylum seekers are um, accommodated. Another topic is sort of the 2015 refugee protection crisis and, and sort of some humanitarian aspects. And then there, there are many more topics as well. Okay. So you're, you're drawing the conclusion that judges are taking different decisions on asylum cases as salience increases. And the cases that they're looking at are, are similar. So it's not that they've got kind of a more complex set of cases or a different set of cases. So it's not about kind of case uh, dissimilarity that's driving this result. Are you concluding that judges are essentially being responsive to public opinion or to this increase in salience then? Can you, can you kind of exclude other factors here from your, from your conclusions overall? What I try to do really well in my study or what I really pay a, a lot of attention to, I think, is, is, is try and show that we can really conclude from this analysis that it is the variation in issue salience that is responsible for some of the differences in outcome um, that we see. Obviously, there's other things as well that determine the outcome. But if we have two cases that are you know, very similar, um, maybe with different decisions, that that could be one reason. Um, now, as to, you know, why issue salience matter, that is a different question, one that is even uh, more difficult to, to address. And I think I try to get at that as well. And I try to show that I cannot find any evidence um, that judges consciously respond to public pressure so that they are in some sense aware of the pressure mounting and then choose to become more restrictive in, uh, in their definition. And so from that, I conclude that it's more likely that there's something subconscious going on. And, and that's also um, something that we know happens with, with voters, right? When they make you know decisions about political behavior, um, how to vote in elections and things like this. 
it's not something that I can answer definitely. Final question from me, Judith. Um, your research is looking at judges in Switzerland, and Switzerland's slightly unusual in this case in that the judges are elected from by the legislature. So does that create a kind of uh, uniqueness around the Swiss case, or do you feel confident saying that the, the patterns that you've observed here would be generalizable to other kind of Western democracies? Yeah, thanks, Jennifer. So I, I think we should always be cautious about generalizing uh, from single case analysis. And um, you're very right to point out that the Swiss judicial setup is quite unusual uh, in several respects. So just the way you know judges are appointed or elected is quite specific in Switzerland and varies a lot across countries um, as well. So in Switzerland, you were saying that uh, judges or the asylum judges are um, sort of elected by the legislator. They're also typically members of political parties, which is something that is also quite unusual. But then, so if we think about how other countries appoint judges, for instance, um, they do not require judges to be affiliated with political parties most of the time and often don't have the legislator elect them. But there is, it's still the case that the judicial selection system is somehow politicized in many, in many countries. So we have legislators or ministers that are involved in the appointment process in somehow. And so I think because of that, uh, and because also many aspects are similar um, to Switzerland, so many countries have seen vast numbers of asylum appeals in recent years. They have high politicization of asylum issues um, in general, um, high lots of reporting on asylum and refugee issues. And, and, and so I think that it is likely that we see similar patterns in other countries as well, although it might be the case that Switzerland is a bit more likely to have a larger effect than, than other countries. It's fascinating research, Judith, and um, I, I encourage our, our listeners to go take a look at the paper. Let's, let's switch in and look at your project, Anna. Um, you look at how asylum policies vary between countries. And there are essentially two parts here to, to your analysis. You start by examining how different systems for deciding on asylum applications lead to different outcomes. Can you walk us through that? Yeah. So if if Judith is really looking at um, within countries variation in what the political environment looks like and how that affects outcomes for asylum seekers, I've taken a big step back and I want to look at patterns across countries, uh, particularly I look at Western industrialized democracies, which I broadly see as the countries who are most invested in the current refugee regime that processes asylum seekers in this way. So I basically start by looking at what determines the overall level of asylum acceptances in a country. Um, so what proportion of asylum applicants are ultimately granted refugee status? Um, and one thing I find is that in countries where there's a higher proportion of asylum decisions being made by judges, so in contrast to administrative uh, uh, bureaucratic agencies, um, those countries tend to accept more asylum seekers overall. So I look at a number of factors that go into this, but the, I think the important takeaway for this piece is that countries where more asylum decisions are being made by actors such as judges who I conceptualize as having some degree of autonomy from elected government, although as Judith just pointed out, that does vary across countries, 
those are also the countries who do tend to offer asylum to more of the people who request it. So, so tell us about that, because I, I mean, I, I think one readers might be trying to understand why is it that if I'm a judge and I'm listening to a particular case from from an asylum seeker, why is that? What's the mechanism that's leading to those more kind of permissive outcomes or that that kind of greater acceptance of the asylum request? I think that compared to elected government. We assume that judicial actors tend to have a less politicized vision of asylum, again, perhaps in contrast to some of the things that Judith is pointing out, but compared to to legislators and executives per se. And that means that they're assessing the facts of the case more so than the impact of accepting people on the overall politics of the country, again, compared to administrative actors. And then another another possible pathway for this is that some judges, at least in certain countries, who hear asylum claims or hear reviews of asylum claims are what we would think of as legal generalists. So people who hear all different kinds of, of legal and constitutional issues, whereas the bureaucrats who assess individual cases are obviously very steeped in the refugee issue per se. And there's a sense that that might also lead to not necessarily unfair decision making, but biases in who is perceived as being uh, um, entitled to refuge in a given case. So the first part of your study, in essence, says that giving judges a greater role in in making asylum decisions leads to to more permissive outcomes, so a greater number of of, of cases being accepted. But there's a second part, uh, looking at the ways in which states try and deter people from seeking asylum in the first place. What What do you look at and what do you find there? Yeah. So the second part, I think, is perhaps the bigger, uh, the more impactful point that I make in in this research, which is this. So there's there's two issues when it comes to refugee protection. There's the outcome of the refugee status determination assessment, which is what we've been talking about so far. And then policies that relate to the treatment of refugees and asylum seekers and migrants more broadly within the country. And so my uh, my argument with regards to deterrence is that this second this second area, this set of policies affecting refugees within the country, is often employed by states strategically as a way to prevent people from seeking asylum on their territory. So deterrence in general is this idea that you can prevent people from applying for asylum in the first place by either reducing the benefits that they will get from a successful a- asylum application or making it more difficult uh, for them to arrive on the territory in the first place. And so, so what I argue in the second part of, uh, of this paper is that countries w- that are overall accepting a higher proportion of the people who apply for asylum there have incentives to employ deterrence policies to prevent people from entering into the asylum process in the first place. Because, of course, you to enter into the asylum process, you have to arrive on the country's territory. So the purpose of these policies is basically to discourage people from coming in the first place. So let's talk a little bit about this idea of, de- of deterrence and how it's kind of used by, by, these, by these institutions. And just to, to connect that first and second part of your research. So if the first part is saying that, you know, if I'm applying for asylum, I want to get to a judge because I'm, I'm more likely to get a better outcome in, in, the, in that case. The second part maybe casts a little bit of doubt on that, or this is this is the second part saying that 
actually both judges and executive agencies can use deterrence more effectively to limit the overall number of refugees. How is that how is that balance out? Yeah, I mean I I guess I because what we're talking about is the aggregate level of protection here, so not so much those individual decisions, I'm not sure that I would draw that conclusion per se. I mean, the way that I the way that I measure deterrence policies in my research um, are not policies that judges per se are promoting, but policies that come from the legislature or from executive agencies. So things like denying people the right to reunite with their families or forcing asylum seekers to stay in uh, detention centers while their case is being processed, this kind of thing. So I don't think that we can necessarily say based on this aggregate research that an individual asylum seeker has incentives to try to reach a country where they're going to be able to be heard by a judge. Um, I think instead what this is showing us is that there is a mismatch between the incentives to process refugee claims in this very um, legalistic and and perhaps more drawn out and more... Um, ultimately more fair adjudication procedure, which which is what we hope happens when people see a judge. And on the other hand, the incentives to prevent people from entering into that process in the first place, which does often involve mistreatment of people uh, once they arrive. So, Anna, take us through the policy implications of, of this research. I mean, what, what would you take away if you were sitting in front of uh, a kind of select committee or a, a legislative committee? What, what would you draw out for making this process fairer, um, more even? Um, and that's going to depend, of course, on who you're, you're presenting your information to. But what are the policy implications here? I think one thing that this highlights is how... Um, how easy it is for states in the global north, so states, as we were saying at the beginning, who aren't immediately proximate to a refugee crisis, how easy it is for them to shirk what you might see as, a, as an international responsibility to protect uh, refugees by deterring them from reaching their territory in the first place. In other words, a country could be totally compliant with the requirement not to return refugees to a dangerous country of origin while still trying to deter them from arriving on the territory in the first place. So I think a big policy implication here is that on a global sense, the way we reimagine the refugee regime, which is an effort that has been going on in international politics over the past few years to try to redesign some of these systems, um, has to take into account these almost perverse incentives that countries have uh, to try to keep people off of their territory in the first place. Both of you have been talking quite a lot um, about both really important questions and, and I think bringing excellent evidence to, to answer these questions. I want to take a step back here in, in our final uh, section and talk a little bit about the politicization of, of refugees and asylum. Um, we've seen in recent years how politicized this particular debate, this area has become. Um, Judith, how sustainable is this? Are we going to see an increase in politicization of, of refugees and asylum, or have we have we reached the kind of height of it? And, and, and what's what's the way to dial this down and make this less politicized, if at all? I, I don't know how we would be able to tell what the future looks like um, when it comes to um, asylum and refugee issues. I think what I can say is that we have seen a large, like quite some. 
fluctuation in the past in terms of how um, sort of politicized, how salient asylum and refugee issues are. And obviously that depends on on many different things like, you know, the extent of of conflict or, you know, who knows whether we'll see more um, climate migration and things like that. So, or, or with the of the importance of the, of the ongoing pandemic, um, refugee, both migration um, and issues have, have not been as salient maybe in the past. But then there's no reason, I guess, to believe that that won't be the case again in the future. And so I would think that this is like an, uh, an issue that we'll talk a lot about again um, at some point in the future. And Anna, your thoughts on on the politicization? I think there's a perception among refugee advocates that politicization um, is is both damaging to refugees in terms of protection and also misunderstands the purpose of refugee status. So there's this effort to really to really compartmentalize refugees who should be non-political, right? It should just be an assumption that they are worthy of protection and other types of migrants. And I don't necessarily think that's the best way forward when it comes to protection. I think that that is sort of wishful thinking, that we could somehow make this a non-political, almost bureaucratic decision-making process and keep politics out of it. That just doesn't strike me as realistic. I think that what this means is that we have to be mindful of the rights of all migrants and all displaced people right? And not try to separate out the ones who are worthy of protection from the ones who we perceive as, um, you know, extraneous in that sense. Uh, So I think that maybe not necessarily leaning into the politics is a good thing, but I think that we shouldn't be afraid of the fact that this is a political issue and our advocacy for refugees shouldn't only depend on separating them out as a separate legal category from other people who are also in need of protection. Thank you both so much. It's been fascinating. And I think, Judith, you, you mentioned there are both the, both the pandemic and climate um, and, and the consequences of both of those on, on this particular issue. And I think, um, if anything, this will, this will keep uh, refugees and asylum firmly on, on our kind of political debate um, in future years. And it will really challenge, I think, um, advocates, if you've been talking about Anna, to think how we deal with, with refugee refugees and asylum um, as we start to realize, I think, some of the consequences of climate change and indeed the pandemic in the next several years. May I thank my colleagues Anna Altman and Judith Spirig. Next week is Reading Week here at UCL, which means the podcast will be taking a little break. We'll be back in two weeks' time when we have a look at global climate governance. What are the institutions through which the international community is seeking to tackle climate change and how are they working? What could be done to improve them? Remember to make sure that you don't miss out on future episodes of UCL Uncovering Politics. All you need is to subscribe, and you can do so on Apple, Spotify, or whatever podcast provider you use. I'm Jennifer Hudson. Our producer is Abby Turner. Our theme music is written and performed by John Mann. This has been UCL Uncovering Politics. Thank you very much for listening. 